The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. We learned last week that a state panel was reviewing the nurse staffing ballot question and their release of the hotly anticipated review this week represented a sort of October surprise for question one. The Health Policy Commission's review also explored some other issues around nurse supply and demand in hospitals. Katie Lannon, what did they have to say? So the Health Policy Commission's review found that question one would cost annually somewhere between $676 million and $949 million, and that the state would need somewhere around 2,000 to 3,000 more nurses to comply with these staffing mandates. Now, if that happens, that would drive up demand, which the commission found could raise nurse wages somewhere between 4 to 6 percent eventually. Not overnight, because they'd be still covered by existing contracts. Now, for those couple thousand new nurses that would need to be brought on, the commission estimated a salary and benefits cost total of about 133 to 138,000 each. And they also looked at where these new nurses could come from. Massachusetts, according to the commission, has a tighter labor market for nurses than other states. So they could recruit from out of the state or out of the country, maybe from other hospitals. So you have some kind of internal churn or within the state, non-hospital facilities. Part-timers could convert to full-time. Nurses could delay their retirements. And of course, there'd be new graduates from nursing school. Now, interestingly, according to the commission, New England has the slowest recent growth and projected future growth for registered nurses in part of all the regions in the country, in part because of higher numbers of retirements. Nurses are slightly older here than in the rest of the country and slightly more educated, too. Um, New England has the lowest percentage of registered nurses under age 40 and the highest percentage over age 50. So that's another kind of wrinkle. To consider. Sure, sure. Now, now that we have these numbers from the HPC, uh, what comes next? So the HPC asserts that their role is not a political one. They're a cost watchdog agency. It's not their role to tell people how to vote. They said they consulted with a state campaign finance office before their review. And the, the chairman, Stuart Altman, one of the things he said this week is that it's entirely possible that a voter could look at this this figure they have of 676 to 949 million and say, you know what, that's worth it. We should pay that money. Regardless of their intents, the campaigns have been seizing on these numbers. The the yes on one campaign, the nurses union are upset with the HPC's decision to even jump in here since they'll be crafting the regulations required if this question passes. Um, and they're questioning the process and the data involved. The opponents, no on one, we're going to see them pointing to these estimates to make their case that hospitals just can't swing this financially. We saw the uh, Massachusetts Association of Health Plans come out this week against question one, pointing to the HPC's findings, which, and they say that the added costs will lead to higher premiums. And this is a preliminary analysis. The HPC plans to update it, and we're going to hear more details, more discussed at their uh, upcoming cost trend hearings later this month. The researchers will again present their findings to a much bigger crowd this time, and a reaction panel that includes experts from both Massachusetts and California, which was the first state to pass a nurse staffing ratio law. Um, They'll kind of dive into those figures afterwards. Yes, indeed, Katie. We continue to look forward to that 
so-called Super Bowl of Healthcare coming up later this month. Counting down the days. Yes, indeed. Thanks. The Cannabis Control Commission gave so-called final approval on Thursday to two recreational marijuana shops, but in this case, final doesn't necessarily mean final. Colin A. Young, what does final mean here? Uh, And there's a question people have been asking for almost two years now. When are the pot shops finally going to open? Uh, Well, thanks, Sam L. Doran. Uh, Thank you. The chairman of the Cannabis Commission said this week that we are now weeks away from retail pot shops opening in Massachusetts. So it sounds like, uh, you know, probably by Thanksgiving, uh, these stores will open. Uh, Thursday, the Cannabis Commission gave, as you said, final but not exactly final approval uh, to two retail shops. And it had been 696 days since the uh, ballot question to legalize adult use of marijuana uh, was approved by voters in 2016. So the two final licenses were granted to cultivate holdings in Leicester. Have you ever been to Leicester, Sam? Uh, that's near Spencer, I think. Uh, sort of, yeah. Sort yeah, of? Yeah, out just west of Worcester. All right. Uh, and Cultivate was uh, approved to grow up to 10,000 square feet of marijuana, and CCC inspectors said they currently have about 7,600 square feet of canopy. Uh, they were also approved to produce marijuana products, including gel capsules, uh, sublingual tinctures, balms, edibles, and vaporizer cartridges. And they were approved to uh, start selling non-medical marijuana uh, at the same location as they currently have a medical marijuana dispensary. And New England Treatment Access, which currently has medical dispensaries in Brookline and Northampton, was approved Thursday to sell non-medical marijuana at its shop in Northampton. Have you been to Northampton, Sam? Uh, I think it's near Amherst, and I've been there. You are correct. I know how to pronounce Amherst. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, So why does final not mean final here? Uh, It doesn't mean final because the CCC imposed a series of conditions on both licenses, including requirements that they submit to the CCC, all training materials for uh, employees, and any education or informational materials that they might uh, make available to customers. So the final couple of steps before these stores will actually be able to open, why are we weeks away? Uh, That's because now that they have final approval, they can finally get into the CCC's uh, uh, tracking system, the seed-to-sale tracking system. So they have to log all of their inventory in that. They have to get waivers from Department of Public Health so that uh, people who are not registered medical marijuana patients can enter these facilities with just a proof that they're 21 years or older. Uh, and they have to get permission from DPH to transfer some of their medical inventory over to the adult use side. And then as soon as all that happens, the CCC has to go back out and make sure all that inventory is properly in the tracking system. Then they'll get the final uh, go notice. So that's why we're weeks away from opening. Gotcha. And uh, when these two shops do open after two years of waiting for stores to open, uh, if there's lines down the sidewalk, how are they going to cope with the crowds that they might see, Colin? Yeah, so the the, uh, Cannabis Control Commission and the operators uh, both expect there will be lines, there will be crowds when these stores open, exactly as you said. People have been waiting two years for uh, retail stores to open. Uh, So the Cannabis Control Commission and the uh, licensees, they've been in touch with local police departments to make sure that the police departments know when these stores are going to open so they can make sure they have uh, extra officers on duty for traffic, crowd control, and the like. Uh, And both uh, businesses are setting up uh, sort of 
uh, separate procedures for medical marijuana patients uh, so that they don't have to wait in these long lines of recreational customers uh, to be able to go in and get their medicine. Hey, thanks, Colin. Thanks, Sam. Have a good weekend. You as well. Go Sox. Go Sox. Governor Baker went down to Washington this week to speak to the Log Cabin Republicans, a group of pro-LGBT Republicans. Matt Murphy, you got a hold of a tape of Baker's speech. What did he talk to them about? And how was it received? That's right, Sam. Uh, the governor traveled to D.C. for a dinner at the the famous and historic Mayflower Hotel. It's the annual dinner of the Log Cabin Republicans who have invited Governor Baker, in fact, a couple times. And they were finally able to make it work this year. He was joined by uh, Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, also another popular blue state uh, Republican governor. And uh, in his remarks that ran about 25 minutes uh, to this group that included his former running mate, Richard Tassay, who was on the board of the log cabins, and he was in attendance in D.C., he, he kind of kept it to personal stories. He talked about running with Tassay. He talked about uh, the the story of his brother coming out to him in the in the 80s at a at a bar in Harvard Square and how he uh, how he received his brother and uh, this was actually a, a a campaign issue during the 2014 run and he recorded a video with his brother about this and made it sort of an issue. Uh, about how uh, this governor is, is someone who's inclusive and uh, accepting of the LGBT community and, and someone who's a friend to the community. And, and he kind of pivoted from there and talked a bit more uh, stories we've all heard about growing up in a family with a Republican father and a Democratic mother who used to fight at the kitchen table. And yeah, we've, we've heard that one. Yeah. We have heard that. And, you know, but he used this to kind of uh, kind of beef up his, his bipartisan uh, credentials and, and talk about inclusiveness and how he's someone who governs uh, looking to, as he put it, uh, get everyone he can onto the playing field, uh, no matter who you are. And while we weren't there, it did get me thinking this week about the governor's relationship with the LGBT community here in Massachusetts and how it's evolved over the past three and a half years plus of his governorship. And and how would you characterize that relationship? Well, I reached out to a lot of the leaders in the community this week, and uh, they all kind of had the same thing to say to me, which was, it's complicated. Uh, the governor has uh, been there with them on important issues. He signed bills like the Transgender Public Accommodations Bill. Uh, he signed legislation guaranteeing health care coverage uh, for HIV-related lipodystrophy, which uh, is something of importance in the community. This was uh, a condition caused in a lot of early HIV patients by the drug cocktails that they were given to treat HIV. And I think you have to remember a bit about where the governor started with this community and go back to 2010 when he was first running, even though he picked Richard Tassay as his running mate, who at the time was a, the openly gay Senate minority leader here on Beacon Hill. The governor was vowing at the time to veto what opponents had dubbed the bathroom bill. Uh, this is the same bill, the transgender protection bill, that he would go on to sign six years later. Uh, but at the time, he was a vocal opponent of it uh, during his 2010 run. And he had to kind of evolve, like uh, some uh, leaders in the community told me this week, like a lot of people had to evolve on that issue. So while he's eventually gotten to where a lot of the LGBT advocates uh, and uh, leaders uh, have wanted him to be, it's, it's taken some time and they're still a little leery of him.
And a referendum on that transgender public accommodations law, question three, is on the ballot uh, next month, as is Governor Baker's re-election bid. Uh, did he talk about question three at all down in Washington? Yeah, he didn't, Sam. That's a good question. And he did not bring it up. It was brought up, I'm told, during the introduction. Uh, the woman who introduced the governor to uh, the log cabin dinner uh, mentioned that the governor had signed this bill. It drew some applause, but he did not get into it. And I think that sort of speaks to a part of the problem some in the community have with the governor. That while he's there with them ultimately on all of these issues of importance to them. He's not much of a vocal leader. He's been fairly quiet. Uh, if you ask him about question three, for instance, he will tell you that he does not think anyone should be discriminated against. He is for people being able to use public facilities based on their gender identity, and that's why he signed the law. But he's not out there championing this issue. And I think that's why uh, a lot of uh, people in the LGBT community, at least they told me, why they still kind of keep him at arm's length. Uh, they, they want to embrace him. They're thankful and grateful uh, that he has been with them and supportive. Uh, but they're, they're not uh, opposed to an alternative uh, style of leadership that would be more uh, out there and uh, kind of leading the cause rather than being reactive. Is this a dangerous topic for him? Yeah, I think that's hard to say. You know, uh, this came up, I think we saw in the rally on City Hall Plaza earlier this week where Democrats were protesting uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. And uh, there was a, a trans community member who was there saying that the governor was absent on question three, that he had gone basically MIA. Uh, and she was looking for someone like Jay Gonzalez uh, to uh, be a, an outspoken advocate for the community. Whether or not this hurts him, though, in the election, I think uh, it's difficult to say. The LGBT community is, uh, I think, by and large, seen as a traditional Democratic voting bloc, and that's unlikely to change. But uh, the fact that the governor can go to places like the log cabin Republicans and speak uh, from the heart. I mean, Richard Tessay, who was there, told me this was the best speech he's ever heard the governor give. He called him a national treasure. And the fact that the governor can, if he can go there, speak from the heart, speak about his brother and speak personally, I think it gives a lot of moderates comfort uh, knowing that, at least on these social issues, they can pull the lever for a Republican. National treasure. All right. Uh, should we page Nicholas Cage? I got nothing for you. <laughs> uh, have a good weekend, Matt. Thanks, Sam. The News Service's editor, Michael P. Norton, joins us now with this week's Editor's Note. Thanks, Sam. Uh, the main event coming out of Columbus Day weekend is Tuesday's big uh, debate between Governor Charlie Baker and Democrat Jay Gonzalez. It's the first of three debates. This, this one will be hosted by WBZ-TV. Earlier in the day Tuesday, the Cannabis Commission is poised to receive a staff presentation on another frontier in legal marijuana. That would be social consumption of pot at cafes and other places where the public congregates. Uh, also, the Beth Israel Leahy Health merger will be back in the news Wednesday. Uh, the proposal, which would create a second uh, giant healthcare system to rival Partners Healthcare, it's back before the State Public Health Council. Uh, after the Health Policy Commission members raised concern about the deal's potential negative impacts on healthcare costs and access. Now, eventually, the Attorney General is going to be checking in on this topic as well. Uh, also on Wednesday, the Health Council is set to hear a presentation on elevated HIV rates in northeastern Massachusetts, including Lowell and Lawrence. 
Back in April, state officials said the federal government had agreed to assist them with investigating a cluster of new HIV infections in that area among people who inject drugs or are homeless. Uh, Preliminary data showed 52 new HIV cases in 2017 in the area, up from 23 in 2016. Uh, In yet another race, uh, Treasurer Deb Goldberg and her Republican opponent, Keiko Oral are set to debate on Wednesday with WGBH's Jim Browdy moderating. And later in the week, Sam, the Department of Public Utilities has scheduled three days of hearings in Boston on Vineyard Wind's plans for uh, facilities to deliver energy from its offshore wind farm. Uh, Now, the energy is going to flow 34 miles to an Eversource substation in Barnstable. Uh, On Friday, Vineyard Wind announced that it has entered into a host community agreement with Barnstable, under which it will make annual payments to the town of at least $1.53 million and guarantee a total host community payment of $16 million. Thursday afternoon, Baker and Gonzalez are back together again. They'll take questions separately over at the Museum of Science. Uh, The topic will be energy and environmental issues. The week ahead, Sam will also bring an exodus of 15 state lawmakers uh, who are bound for an an election season trip to Portugal. Senate President Karen Spilka and nine of her colleagues in the Senate plan to join five House members for meetings with government officials, and they are set to return on October 16th. I wouldn't mind being in Portugal right about now. Sounds good. (laughs) It does. All right. Thanks, Mike. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.